1: I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week?
0: Well, I'm coming off of pretty rollicking Father's Day, I'll tell you that. Yeah, tell me about
1: it. What'd you do? How'd you get down?
0: Uh, I'll tell you how I got down, Chad. I uh, ate a breakfast burrito, which was brought to me in, in my home office. Then I went on a hike. Went on a long hike, just me and my dog. Then I came back, read on the back porch, unbothered, for like, at least ninety minutes.
1: Wow, that does sound very wild. Yeah. Over here, we had my uh, middle child's fifth birthday on Saturday. Okay, yes, I uh, saw.
0: I saw the images of this on social media.
1: As you might imagine, was totally off the chain. Uh, It featured a Batman pinata among other things. Yeah, full of candy. So now we got. We got a big bowl of candy here at the house now that came out of the piñata
0: once it was finally felled. Okay, now I saw the moment that the piñata was, as you say, felled. It looked to me, and maybe different people do piñatas differently. I understand that. There's no one right or wrong way to have yourself a piñata at a party. But what it looked like to me was that your oldest child, your daughter, just walked up to it. No blindfold, no spinning around, batting her hand and separated batman's head from his body and that was the end of the pinata is that is that what happened
1: i mean that's that's accurate we discussed whether or not we should have a blindfold prior to pinata time and i think that the consensus among the adults was that we all kind of looked around and we were like how long do we want to be here
0: yeah okay that's fair how long
1: do we we want pinata time to take so we opted to not do Blindfolds, because, you know, the kids are three, five, and seven. So it's not like, uh, Babe Ruth is walking up to the pinata and, uh, separating Batman's head from his shoulders on the first swing. So we went with, without the blindfold. I'd say every kid got three or four turns to go up and take cuts at the pinata before my seven year old finally brought it down. So it actually worked out. I think if we had done, uh, blindfold, it would have been a much lengthier process.
0: Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I did note though, the way your daughter walked up and just ended this whole pinata charade. There was there was a coldness in her eyes. There was a malice in her heart. I think you're going to yeah. want to watch out for that one.
1: I was proud of her. I yeah. was proud of her from the way that she uh, very clinically dissected the pinata with the uh, Nerf baseball bat. Just there to handle some
0: business is what that was. That's
1: right. <laughs> uh, well, here we are rolling on like we always do. Free content every Monday here on the Co Main Event Podcast proper. And you know, all week long we'll be over at the Patreon page. Now is the time that we traditionally invite you to go over there and support the CME on our Patreon page. It's more important than ever right now. Uh, Thanks to all the people who in the past couple weeks have gone over and signed up for the Patreon page or up their contributions there. We appreciate that support a lot. Uh, Help keep the discourse here on the CME unfettered all the time, ad-free. And plus, get yourself a bunch of additional podcasts every week. Uh, If it's something you've been thinking about, head over to patreon.com slash co-main event. You can sign up there today. Three different tiers of potential patronage that you can help support the show. And uh, it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun over there. Don't forget, you can also run out and get your co-main event podcast merchandise. We got CME logo t-shirts over at CottonBureau.com. We got Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts over at CottonBureau.com. And we got Dundasso t-shirts over at CottonBureau.com. Those are always available on demand all the time. Whenever you want them, go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some of that CME merchandise. Ben, rumor on the streets. We might be on the verge. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not saying it's going to happen next week. But the rumor on the streets or that we might be on the verge of having some new merchandise over there at CottonBureau.com. dot com.
0: Well, shit! Now that you said it, now that you put it out there into the world, I guess we have to.
1: Just a rumor. It's just it's out there in the ether. It's, it's a rumor. It's the, the word on the streets is talking, and that's what they're saying.
0: A rumor about our plans that we started. That's I mean, what it is. We don't. You don't have to say it like that. I was trying to drum up some intrigue here. Listen, we don't. We don't do intrigue here. This is – intrigue is not our bag.
1: All right. I guess we. I should just tell the people at home we're thinking about having a new shirt on conbro.com. We're thinking there, about having a
0: new shirt. There you go. We'll probably do it. We'll probably do it now. We have to. Really, Chad really painted this into a corner here.
1: Yeah. God knows if the co-main event podcast is known for one thing, it's following through on everything we talk about on the show. Exactly. We got music this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element official. As you guys know by now, that's the word the with an A. The Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co Main Event podcast. In round number one, with apologies to Dana White, it seems like maybe Curtis Blades just got interesting. And in round number two, Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos had themselves a damn slobber knocker in the co-main event on Saturday night. Emmett would like to dedicate it to all the, wait, all the haters in the media who counted him out. Huh? And What on earth is he talking about? And in round number three, Dustin Poirier prepares to welcome Dan Hooker to the lightweight elite in the first UFC main event in about three weeks that actually feels main. And actually feels event all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Winston Wolf. Ben. Oh shit! You sending the wolf, Chad? Yeah. So this things just got serious here.
0: Oh wow. Okay.
1: I for one feel better knowing that the wolf is on the scene.
0: Once the wolf is on the case, everything else will just kind of take care of itself.
1: Winston Wolfe writes, with the uptick in disgruntled fighters overpay, I ask you guys this, if you were brought in as an arbitrator and your job was to broker a deal that would appeal to both fighters and the UFC, something that would be realistic, help the fighters and not totally derail the UFC that we as fans know and love, such as watered down cards or squash matches that boxing has, what would be the framework of some things you would try to get both sides to agree to? Now this is a great question. Although I would I would point out that I'm not sure how steeped in reality some of these uh some of these caveats are. Cuz number one, I don't know that you're ever going to get a deal that's better for fighters that quote appeals to the UFC. And number two, I don't know what uh you would consider realistic and I don't know what you would think would derail, quote-unquote, derail the UFC that we have today because we already have watered-down cards. We always have, or we already have squash matches. So those things would not be different if any kind of agreement between fighters and the promotion were ushered in. uh, Yeah,
0: but we're kind of far down the the hypothetical rabbit hole here just to even imagine the scenario where, 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 first of all, any arbitrator is brought in. Because why would the UFC – what would force the UFC to go to arbitration with the fighters kind of collectively? That's shockingly close to the collective bargaining that a union or fighters association would be able to provide that we've been talking about. That hasn't made any headway. Also, to then go beyond that to imagine that the arbitrators that are chosen are the co-main event podcast hosts, Chad Dundas and Ben Foulkes. But okay, I I can go ahead and I can suspend the disbelief just for the sake of – The Wolf, if he's asking, I I don't want to go against him here. But I think the first thing that comes to my mind is the financial split, right? Like that's the part where, A, I think the UFC would push back the hardest because the UFC really likes this essentially 80-20 or below split that it gives the fighters. And that's one of the main appeals of the UFC to its ownership group and a lot of its celebrity investors is, hey, here you have an opportunity, you own a piece of the UFC, and here's one of the ways that we can guarantee that you get your investment back and that they make these huge dividend payouts is because we keep fighter pay low. And that is that's not on accident. That is absolutely on purpose. And I think anytime we get into talking about money, when you know you hear people complain about money, I'm sure we'll talk about it later with with Curtis Blades. I mean Curtis Blades, the thing he was saying about money, which seemed to put him on Dana White's dart, personal dartboard, there to to throw darts at after the, the post fight press conference, he wasn't even necessarily complaining about the money he was making. He was talking about guys who come into the UFC, make twelve and twelve, and then also have to have a side job just to get through. Because once you you know if you make twelve thousand dollars and then everybody takes their cut, you don't go home with a whole lot, and then you got to get live on that until your next fight. I mean that's how like he's saying you got guys who are fighting on ESPN. Like in the UFC, the highest level of sport fighting on ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, and they gotta drive for Uber to make ends meet. And that, that's not uncommon and, and there's no reason that that needs to be the case. I mean, if you improve the the split, then a lot of that stuff goes away. And it doesn't even have to be just that, you know, you're giving John Jones more money to entice him into a fight with Francis Ngannou, just that you raise all the boats a little bit and everybody get sees a little bit more money and the UFC could absolutely do that and still take home millions and millions of dollars they just don't want to
1: yeah i think if you are in a situation where the fighters a hypothetical situation where the fighters are able to ask the UFC or demand things from the UFC i think you got to go for for three primary things i think number 1 you got to go for uh, a bigger split in revenue like you said i think you have to ask for 50-50 or something approaching 50-50 so that you are more comparable to other mainstream sports in America. Number two, I think you got to have an independent review of UFC contracts. And you have to determine what's legal, what's not legal. And you have to have someone who can speak on behalf of the fighters to try to uh, come up with a, with a slightly more equitable independent contractor agreement if that's the status you're going to remain at. Because right now, that's a lot of the problems in this sport have to do with how those UFC and really fight contracts throughout MMA because almost every other fight promotion used the UFC boilerplate as its example of how to write its contracts. Like One of the big problems in this sport is how all of those contracts are structured. I think it would be a huge step forward if you were able to root out some of the more uh, predatory – clauses in that contract to give the fighters a little bit more freedom in how to how they handle their career. And number three, health insurance. Like we have a situation now where the UFC can pay its fighters uh, surgeries and other health problems if they happen either during training camp or in a fight. But I would like to see kind of a year-round health insurance, a standardized health insurance provided to all fighters. And I think if you got those three things, you would be well on your way to having a more equitable sport. Uh, and some of those other things that we talk a lot about might kind of handle themselves or work themselves out. Of course, in addition to that, you know, fighter pensions and things like that care for people, uh, once they retire, once they're a little bit further down the road and, and getting along in age, I think it would be nice to have a program where some of those people could be taken care of. But, uh, I would isolate those, those top three things. And then, you know, if, if I had a fourth, maybe the, uh, maybe some, some manner of pension.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's not a bad idea either. I guess the thing is, if you're the UFC and you're sitting down soberly listening to these very professional arbitrators who have come here before you today in T-shirts and cargo shorts, and have they have outlined this stuff that they want everybody to agree to, the UFC would say, wait a minute, this all involves us giving up stuff Doing stuff that we don't already have to do and giving up money that we usually get to keep in our pockets. And what do we get? What do we get in exchange for it, Arbitrator Chad Dundas? Is it just that we'll all shut up about fighter pay?
1: You get to go on having your sport, right? You get to go on making the hundreds of millions of dollars that you already make uh, without any further labor disruption. I mean you've got a sport that already almost 100% favors the people in charge of it. So I'm not sure – what the what the give and take could possibly be from a labor force that has already given almost everything during the first two and a half decades of, of this sport's history? I don't know if there were uh, are there concessions that you feel like could be made on the on the fighters' end. Like what, what would you see as being uh, something additional that they could offer the owners here?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just seems like that's we're trying to broker a deal that would appeal to both sides. And I think what we're realizing is this is why such a deal has not been broached before, is because the fighters have not found a way, found uh, the leverage to come to the UFC and be like, here's why you need to make these concessions for us. Because, I mean, right now we see, I think, you know, as Winston Wolfe referred to, an uptick in disgruntled fighters. And I think that the the chorus is louder now than it's ever been from an, a multiple different sources. Like that's the difference I think now that it's not just one or two people speaking up here or there; that it's a bunch of people all speaking up around the same time, and powerful people in the sport as well as you know lesser lesser known players in the sport. And yet, I don't know if the UFC is looking at this right now and seeing like, okay, this is a crisis, like this is a coming problem that we're going to have to deal with, and we need some way to head it off. I don't. I think that they think. Uh, this will be like all the other ones. Like the, people will give us shit for a while. We'll end up having to defend it in press conferences for a little while. Dana White will roll out all the same talking points, and when that doesn't work, he'll use the exact same talking points just in a louder voice and maybe bang on the table a little bit, and then it'll go away the way it always has.
1: Yeah, they are also very adamant that they have other things to think about
0: right now. It's so, a pandemic. I don't know if you knew that.
1: Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler, who writes, "Hey guys." What the fuck is with the foggy-ass camera at the Apex? Am I the only one to notice this? Have we talked about this and I missed it? Is this supposed to be, quote-unquote, artistic? Or am I having a stroke? Please discuss. Also, do you smell burning toast? Did you did you notice this, Ben? I actually didn't, didn't notice this before uh, this weekend, the Curtis Blades versus Alexander Volkov event, but it does seem like maybe the overhead camera, the boom camera that's kind of up above the octagon where you get the... Uh, you know, you often get your your first look at the fight as the fighters come together. Uh, is prone to a little bit of condensation there in the Apex Arena.
0: I have not noticed this at all. Well, now yeah, I'm gonna have to go bit, back and uh, review some tape. So the one, it, the, the one that's like directly overhead, like like bird's eye view, looking down into the cage. Is that what you're saying?
1: Not the one that is like right up over completely overhead. I'm talking about the 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 camera that's kind of on a boom. That okay. uh, when the fight starts and the two fighters come out of their corner, it kind of swoops down over the octagon, gives you that sort of like zoom in effect. And then primarily from there, most of what you get is camera work from the the humans that are standing along the outside of the cage. Uh, but this is this sort of like boom camera that gives you a slightly wider, wider angle view of the octagon. Not the one that is all the way up on the ceiling overhead, but the one that gives you sort of a
0: look up over the top of the, The sides of the fence. Okay, I have not noticed. I'm gonna have to go look back at some tape, see what's going on. Is it possible? Is the apex just like a small sweaty arena? And the yeah, I think so. But it only affects one camera. Well, maybe because well, I mean, I I assume the other guys can
1: yeah can kind of police their own their own lenses. I don't know about the boom camera, Uh, and maybe they clean it off occasionally throughout the throughout the show. Also, I'm not sure, but yeah, I don't think it's on purpose. I don't think it's artistic. I don't think they're trying to give you a an Instagram filter look at the octagon i think it's a uh it's a condensation
0: problem okay well now i just got an idea for like a special theme night at the ufc where we give each camera like a different filter or a different kind of like we you know when you're switching back and forth when you're trying to find a good angle especially in like grappling exchanges and maybe go to one and it's like black and white humphrey bogart movie kind of thing going on and then you go to another one and it's like one of those snapchat filters that, that makes everybody look like a cat or something what do you think?
1: Yes, as long as I get to choose when it
0: happens. No, you don't.
1: I mean, it it just happens. I have no control over it. I would find that extremely annoying. I'm also very old.
0: Yeah, no. It's going to be annoying and possibly revolutionary. (laughs) You know where you
1: should take this? uh, The XFL. Okay, (laughs) all right. You know, they've they've been known to do some revolutionary stuff with the cameras, with the look, with the sound, or the broadcast. Maybe you take this – this random filters idea straight up to Vince McMahon's office and tell him if and when the XFL comes back, here's what you're doing.
0: Okay. I mean, I've, I've been looking to get involved as an investor in the XFL for a while now. So maybe this is my end.
1: Next question this week comes to us from all time. Great soccer referee. Pierluzia Colina probably nailed it. Nailed it. All time. Great. uh, Voted. FIFA's best ref of the year six consecutive times best, Ben. Widely considered to be one of the greatest football refs of all time.
0: Wow. Good
1: for him. And he has a a, a judging question here for us. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about judging and 10-8 rounds. I still don't have a good feeling when they are deserved. Take the fight between Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos. That third round where Emmett knocked Burgos down twice, made him do the silly walk once, looked like a clear uh 10 8 for me, but only one judge saw it that way. Am I am I that far off? What are your criteria for 10 8 rounds and do you think we should see more of them?
0: Well, it's not really about what our criteria of the 10-8 round is. I'm gonna to read to you the 10-8 round scoring criteria from the Association of Boxing Commissions website for for the NMA Unified Rules. Uh, and for what it's worth, it lists like 10 10 round, you know, and for one thing it says 10 10 round should be extremely rare, not a score to be used as as an excuse by a judge that cannot assess the differences in the round. A 10-9 round is where one combatant wins the round by a close margin. A 10-8 round is where one fighter wins the round by a large margin. And here's what it says. A 10-8 round in MMA is not the most common score a judge will render, but it is absolutely essential to the evolution of the sport and the fairness to the fighters that judges understand and effectively utilize the score of 10-8. A score of 10-8 does not require a fighter to dominate their opponent for five minutes of a round. A score of 10-8 is utilized by the judge when the judge sees verifiable actions on the part of either fighter. Judge shall always give a score of 10-8 when the judge has established that one fighter has dominated the action of the round, had duration of the domination, and also impacted their opponent with either effective strikes or effective grappling maneuvers that have diminished the abilities of their opponent. Judges must consider giving the score of a 10-8 when a fighter shows dominance in the round even though no impactful scoring against the opponent was achieved. Uh, And then it goes on to say MMA is an offensive-based sport, no scoring to give him for defensive maneuvers, yada, yada, yada. Um, Basically, if you read the judging judging criteria as laid out here, you would expect to see a fair amount of 10-8 rounds, and you really don't. And I think it's got to be just that people got it in their heads, the judges got it in their heads that a 10-9 that, you know, 95% 95% of rounds are going to be a 10-9. And that's just the way it is. Like you see a guy who won that round, even if you see it and you're like, okay, easy to, to decide who won that round. That guy clearly won that round, 10-9. And they just – I think it's just a, a mode of thinking that they're in and it takes a lot for them to jar themselves out of it and start to to change their thinking to to look at a fight like a round where if it wasn't like somebody got the absolute shit beat out of them or got, got close to being finished necessarily – like if they don't see that right now, they their mind just doesn't even go to the 10-8 possibility. And when you read the criteria, it suggests that they really should.
1: Yeah. I agree with that there should be more 10-8 rounds in mixed martial arts. Uh, I also agree that, you know, some manner of of broader scoring overhaul might improve things in, in MMA. It's just that, you know, you start tinkering around with these rules, as we've said on the show a hundred times before, and it starts to get a lot more difficult. And a lot more complicated than you think it's going to be. Uh, we can't get everybody as,
0: to, to – all the commissions to agree on the unified rules. Right. Unified <laughs> rules. It's right there in the name. We can't even get everybody to, to agree on the unified rules.
1: That's right. Uh, Michael Bisping noted during this, this Burgos-Emmett fight, which we're going to talk more about coming up later in the show, that uh, in boxing, it's different. In boxing, if you get knocked down and you're on the canvas, it's sort of an automatic 10-8 round. I don't think we would want that in MMA either just because – uh you know the we, we see more flash knockdowns, we see more uh, you know, slips and whatnot in, in MMA and with with fewer rounds, if you only have a three round fight, you don't want you don't want to give somebody a 10-8 when it's undeserved because then you've put the the other fighter in, in a real hole in terms of being able to come back on the scorecards. But I do think that there needs to be more kind of diversity in the scorecards, more ability for judges and a better willingness, I guess, as you said a minute ago, to to hand out those those 10-8s or 10-7s or whatever they may be. Now, did you think round 3 in Burgos versus Emmett should have been a
0: 10-8? Yeah. I think so.
1: Okay, see, so then I think what you're dealing with here is the uh this sort of pre-baked built-in uh uh like uh, almost unwillingness to give a 10-8 because uh, that that round maybe wasn't lopsided enough to give a 10-8 just in terms of of the action itself. It was a fairly competitive round. It was just that Burgos got knocked down a couple times. Uh, so if you were going to give a 10-8 there, like you would you would probably be a, a judge that would be more inclined to give a broader a broader selection of 10 eights anyway. So I, I I don't know. It's a it's an interesting question. And it's another one where like I feel like to to really fix the problem or to make it to make it a, a different outcome in the sport, you would have to, to like really get involved in, in either changing the rules or changing the way judges apply the rules. Either one of those is kind of a, a Pandora's box situation. Once you actually start to get into it.
0: Do you think that one of the reasons people are hesitant about the 10, eight round is that especially in MMA where most fights are three rounds, it's a recipe for more draws. Cause if you lose the first two rounds, 10, nine, and you come back and you score yourself a 10 in 8 in that last round. I mean, you can just see how it would lend itself more often to, like, you, you would you probably end up coming up with more draws. And do you think that people are thinking about that and going, uh, we don't want that?
1: Yeah, maybe so, man. Maybe so. I don't, I don't know that, but that's a great point. Uh, next question this week comes to us from noted ventriloquist dummy, Howdy Doody.
0: Oh, wow. What a big moment this is.
1: I know. Uh, Howdy Duty writes, am I crazy in feeling nothing but good things about Max Roshkoff's decision to call it quits after the second round? The fight was fun. Max showed some sharp ground technique in the first round, but after he gassed in round two and Hubbard found his rhythm and blasted him repeatedly at the end of the round, it seemed like round three was going to be ugly uh, for Roshkoff. As MMA fans, are we at the point where we can celebrate when a fighter ends a fight rather than, quote, going out on his shield? Did the lack of a crowd make it easier for Rosecoff to call it a day? Is it just me or did Hubbard look solid in his ground defense and then in his hands? Discourse, if you please. Now, this is a bunch of questions here from Inanimate Object Howdy Doody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to make sure we got this one in cuz obviously this has been a big topic of conversation in the wake of uh Saturday's UFC event. This was been the uh the very first fight of the night you had Max Rosekopf here making his UFC debut coming in against Austin Hubbard. In the first round, you know, it looked like Rose might might be on his way to winning this thing. He's he's out there uh, making Tony Ferguson proud with the Imanari rolls and going for knee bars and ankle locks and stuff like that. But it did look, he looked like he gassed out a little bit, encountered some adversity against Austin Hubbard. And then between the second and the third round, told uh, Robert Drysdale, his cornerman, noted jujitsu guy, Robert Drysdale, that he wanted to call it off. Drysdale tried to kind of talk him into staying in the fight, but ultimately uh, Rosekov himself tells the ref he didn't want to come back out for the third, and so there was a stoppage victory for Austin Hubbard. And and I think predictably you've got some controversy here. You've got a topic of conversation that people wanted to to discuss in the next few days. What was your
0: take on this whole situation? Yeah, you know, it, it's uncomfortable watching it. Watching him, I think he says nine times, "Call it, please call it, please call it off," and Drysdale won't do it. And I can almost see what Drysdale is thinking when he explains himself afterwards. I, I read on MMA Fighting, he was talking to Guillermo Cruz, I think it was, and he was saying, you know, it'd be one thing if he was hurt and if it was a result of the damage, but this was cardio, you know, he was tired. And I thought that, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do as his coach is kind of push him and, and get him back out the stool and try to motivate him and get him back out there and help him finish this fight. And yet, at the same time, like I get it if, if you're doing that in practice where the guy's saying, I'm tired, I can't go anymore. And you're saying, no, you're going to do one more round. Like that's, that is your role as a coach to kind of push him through that stuff to get him ready for the fight. But this is a real fight and you're going out there. If you're completely tired and you can't really defend yourself too well anymore, you can get hurt badly in that situation. And we've seen uh, fighters get, get hurt badly. and, and it, that's one of the ways that you would wind up with a tragedy on your hands in MMA is the guy just can't go anymore and you send him back out there and he gets beat on and he's already exhausted and he can't defend himself. Like that, that could get really ugly. And so like I understand if it's – if we're doing conditioning in the gym and yeah, then it is your role to kind of push him. But once he starts saying over and over again, I can't do it, stop the fight, stop the fight, like he's out of it at, mentally at that point anyway. I don't know how you're gonna get him, and you know he said something like, "I'm trying to like motivate him, to get him." In. And it's like all you're saying is, "No, I'm not going to call the fight. Get back in there." Like it's not. I didn't, I didn't hear the the Mickey speech or anything like in the in the corner there. You're just telling him, "No, I'm not going to call it. You get back out there." And I don't know what you're sending him back out there with at that point. And the other thing, I think you have to look at this in the full context of it, right? Because this is a guy who took this fight on like five or six days' notice. Right, it's his, his UFC debut. It's his sixth professional fight. He had one amateur bout, some grappling matches and stuff like that, you know. And but as far as actual professional MMA bouts, this is only his sixth bout. He took it on short notice as a replacement, basically just to get signed to the UFC and to get in there. And at, if he gets to that point where he's like, "I'm not in good enough shape to go," you know, maybe he's not ready for this level of competition just in general yet. At that point. You not only would you be doing the better thing for his health by stopping the fight, but for his career too. Like it'd be better for him if you don't send him back out there just get a, a needless beating put on him in a fight that he, he looks like a, by that point he's going to lose. And it'd be better if the coach could be the one to actually say it to be like we're calling it off because then you know the guy's career and reputation takes a little less of a hit. And doing it this way, it just comes out – it makes him look bad in front of everybody. Everybody's going to remember that about him. And he's still so early on in his career that it's like you, you kind of ruin the guy that way.
1: Yeah. Max Roscoff came into this thing as the betting favorite. I want to say that from the beginning because I don't necessarily think it's a situation where you can blame either the athletic commission or the UFC for for setting up a mismatch. But you do put him in a weird position here where he comes in on 10 days notice against a much more experienced opponent in uh Austin Hubbard who was having his 16th pro fight and had already had three fights in the UFC uh he had gone 1 and 2 so he hadn't been all that successful but previous to that he'd been 10 and 2 in his uh in his independent career then he comes in uh he has some some fights against pretty you know, recognizable opposition, and then for his fourth UFC fight, he has he has Max Roscoph. And even though Roskopf was the favorite, I think you can pretty pretty much look at this fight, and if you want to blame it on something, I think you blame it on the mixture of those factors, right? That he came in on short notice, maybe he didn't get the chance to prepare like he wants to, and he's in there against an opponent who's not only more experienced but has more UFC experience, so is going to be. At another level, just in terms of his comfort and his confidence, perhaps. The other thing you can see, if you look at Max Rosecoff's professional MMA, MMA career, almost all of his wins end in the first round. You know, he's 5-0 and o headed into this fight, and he comes in off the heels of four consecutive first round stoppage victories. The, the fight before that was a stoppage submission that he got in the second round. So not only is he coming in on short notice against a guy who's more experienced, but he's also going into deep water maybe for the first time in his career. And I obviously haven't watched these other independent fights in Roscoff's career, but it's possible that he had never really encountered adversity like this in the cage where he gets touched up a little bit in that second round and he's bleeding. He's got a cut on his eye. So I think you look at this whole situation and you see how for a young guy who's only 25 years old and is just getting started in his career, uh, this, this could be a, a, an uncomfortable situation for him in a situation where uh you know he doesn't respond to it maybe like he would want to. And when if Max Roskoff gets some distance from this fight and he looks back on it, I don't know how he's gonna feel about the decision to quit between rounds uh and walk away. But like if that's what the fighter says he wants to do, then I think it's the corner man's responsibility to communicate that to the ref and, and call this thing off. Because obviously we don't want to send the fighter back out there. If his heart's not in it, if his head's not in it, because like you said, that's when people are going to get hurt. Now, yeah. one of the things that strikes me here on top of all this this, Ben, even though, you know, Dana White at the, at the press conference, uh, defended Max Roscoff a little bit here, said that he didn't think anybody else really had the place to criticize him for, for one to, to, uh, live to fight another day. I guess you could say, Uh, but he also didn't sound like he was 100% excited about bringing Max Roscoff back for another shot. Uh, Kind of you know, using some of his own personal experience, I guess Dana White, as everybody knows, was uh, an amateur boxer at one point, Uh, as a much younger man, said basically, like, I thought I was going to be a fighter and then I had to learn this lesson that I wasn't. That's a little bit of a harsh condemnation about Max Roscoff, I think. Like, I don't necessarily know. We found out the dude wasn't a fighter during this fight. I think we found out He wasn't ready for this opportunity. But one thing that crossed my mind as I'm watching all this is like, obviously, we are in the era of the pandemic here where the UFC is scrambling to put together all these fights. So people are coming in on short notice without much experience and they're fighting people that have much more UFC experience. But the very idea that we would have this kind of experience occur in the UFC is kind of a new thing. Like usually if you make it to the UFC and you have a fight there, you are already somewhat battle tested and you already, uh, you know, are pretty much full speed ahead on on your MMA career or your confidence, your level of experience, whatever it is. It's kind of uh, interesting and uh, surreal in a certain way to see a guy like Max Roscoff come into the UFC at this level in his career and have this outcome where we wouldn't normally see something like this at the sport's highest level.
0: Yeah, and that, I mean, I think that that is just indicative of where we are right now at this moment, that the UFC had a a, a guy fall out, you got to find a replacement, and you don't have the full roster available to you right now for a couple different reasons. And then, so you got to go f- sign somebody new and be like, all right, here's your big opportunity to get in the UFC. And meanwhile, who knows how he's been cobbling together whatever training he may have been doing. And so then to come in there and go you know, 15 hard minutes in your UFC debut on a few days' notice like that, that's a lot to ask. And I think like, I think you have to view it in that that full context of everything there that's going on.
1: Yeah. And as far as Robert Drysdale is concerned, I kind of understand where he's coming from, especially since you look out there and you think your guy probably won the first round. Uh, and so if you put together five more minutes and you could get the win here, and you got your fighter who who's in a big position in his career. He's got the spotlight on him for the first time. It's a big moment for Max Roscoff. So I think if you're Drysdale, I can kind of understand where you're coming from. But when the guy tells you five or six times, I don't have it, call it off, you got to listen to him. Because you can't send him back out there in that state, even if you do think he still has a chance to win.
0: Yeah. Yeah, by that point, I mean... Once you have used your entire minute between rounds just having this conversation and he still has not changed his mind about it, then yeah, I I think you got to call. Also, we're talking about Curtis Blades mentioning, you know, guys fighting in the UFC on ESPN, they're making 12 and 12. Your boy Max came in here making 12 and 12 for this.
1: All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short, it's informative, we would love to tell you it's funny, and if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Curtis Blades told us this was going to happen. As we discussed a little bit on Friday's Power Hour, the top heavyweight contender went on his Twitter account leading up to this fight with Alexander Volkov and basically said, don't watch this thing if you want want to see a 25-minute slugfest because I'm going out there to ragdoll this guy. And then he was good to his word. A takedown-heavy, unanimous decision victory for Curtis Blades here across the board. 49-46 times 2 and 48-47 times 1. Some nervous moments there maybe in the last six minutes or so as Blades seemed to kind of slow down and Alexander Volkov was able to work some of his striking game in this fight. But basically in across the board, whitewash here for Curtis Blades, uh, who reestablishes himself as, aside from Francis Ngannou, probably the top heavyweight contender. He's won four in a row now, wins over Junior Dos Santos and Justin Willis during that string, and of course, Alistair Overeem and Mark Hunt, among others, earlier on uh, for Curtis Blades. Let's start with the fight, and then we can talk about the reaction to the fight maybe in a couple minutes here. What was your take, basically, Ben, about Curtis Blades' performance here? He said what he was going to do, then he went out there and did it, got the win over Alexander Volkov.
0: Yeah, he really, he called a shot pretty much on this one uh, you could argue that maybe it wasn't quite as thorough a ragdolling as he might have led us to believe he was going for there i mean he did get tired at the end you could see the the pained exhausted look on his face in the post-fight interview was really something like that that's a guy who just did some work and was pretty tired and maybe we could have given him another couple minutes uh, to catch his breath before we talked to him but i guess we're trying to wrap up the broadcast with the main event and all but He got his first takedown in this fight, Chad, about eight seconds in to the first round. Just walked across the cage and took Alexander Volkov down right away. And that's when you went, okay, here we go. He told you what kind of fight it was going to be. It was that kind of fight. If you get mad at that, I don't know what else you expected, man. Like Especially, you know what Curtis Blades' strengths are. You know what Alexander Volkov's strengths are. You put Curtis Blades in a situation where his contract pays him $90,000 to show up and $90,000 if he wins. You think he's going to go out there and throw them bungalows and just take his chances and let the chips fall where they may? There's $90,000 separating a win from a loss here. He's going to go out there and shoot a whole bunch of takedowns and hold that guy down and beat him up and just wear him out and and grind his way to a decision victory because that's what he does. And they, I don't know what anybody else was expecting when they made this fight.
1: Yeah, Curtis Blades is one of the uh one of the higher level wrestlers up there at the top of the heavyweight division, you know, guy won a, a a junior college national championship as a sophomore when he was in college and then uh ended up leaving school to to focus on being a pro MMA fighter, but like clearly this dude has those skills, you know? So I don't know how you could I don't know how you could have him go out there against a fighter like Alexander Volkov who's primarily a stand-up guy and expect that Curtis Blades wouldn't use his wrestling skills, which are among the best in the division. So not necessarily a surprise, I guess, that that's what he would do. It gets the unanimous decision victory. Let's talk about the reaction here. Dana White at the post-fight press conference. I like Curtis Blades, but Curtis Blades has the wrong attitude as far as I'm concerned. I don't have anything against the kid at all, but when you talk shit like he talked this week, you better come in and whoop somebody's ass When you talk shit like that, when you talk the shit that he did and perform like you did tonight, you look stupid. So there's your quote from professional MMA promoter, Dana White. Now we, we need to mention this, although I'm sure most of the people listening already know that when Dana White says Curtis blades, quote unquote, talk shit this week, what he means is Curtis blades brought up fighter pay, right? Curtis blades said, don't tell me you don't have the money to pay us. We know it's there. If you're not going to pay us, just tell us you don't want to pay us. In terms of the actual fight, Curtis Blades didn't talk all that much shit aside from saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out and wrestle this guy for 25 minutes, and then that's exactly what he did. So when Dana White says Curtis Blades talked shit, he say he, what he means is he said he's not paid enough. So we got to put that in perspective to begin with. Also, uh, to say a guy who gets a 25-minute unanimous decision victory that solidifies him as the top one or two contenders for the UFC heavyweight title at this point. And to say that he looked stupid, just another instance of uh, unpromotion from yep. the UFC's top promoter.
0: Yeah. You come out of this main event. And first of all, you're playing this clip all throughout when you're hyping us up for the, the main event to come. You're playing the clip saying uh, with Curtis Blade saying, Well, if I beat Alexander Volkov, how can they deny me? Uh, meaning a shot at the heavyweight title to which... The seasoned MMA viewers in the audience are going, "Lol, bro!" I can think of plenty of ways that they will deny you, but fine, that's the the route we're going with when we're hyping up this fight. Then he goes out there, he wins it, and the boss shows up afterwards and talks about how stupid he looked. And again, Curtis Blades wasn't necessarily just saying, "Like I feel like I am underpaid," though he was saying, "You know, I think we should all be paid more." Here's his quote: "I don't like seeing guys go into a war against one another where both guys are amazing and are fighting for twelve thousand to show and twelve thousand to win." It's a little embarrassing. These are top athletes and a lot of them have to have other jobs still. If you want this sport to grow, you need to provide more amenities for us as far as training. You can't have guys who are ranked who have to drive for Uber. That's embarrassing. Then later on, I don't want to hear all those excuses. The money is there. I don't want to hear the excuses. Even if you just bumped us up to like 29% of the revenue, that would be a giant raise for guys. I don't want to hear that. If you don't want to pay us, just say you don't want to give us the money. Just say that and don't make excuses. And like the, the argument that you know i don't like seeing guys come in there where they're both really good fighters and they're making 12 and 12 and they're in there in a war just beating each other's brains in and that's embarrassing how many fighters have to you know they pay for their own coaches pay for their own training and then have to have side jobs and everything and you're telling us on one hand that this is a major sport and these are the very best at it in the world and on the other hand you're treating them like it's a part-time gig like it's you know like you're they're playing in a a Aerosmith cover band like Friday and Saturday nights, and like and, and that's not how it is, man. Like you, you both those things kind of can't coexist together. And so when he makes that point, I just don't see how you disagree with him. I don't see. And when he says like, "Hey, how about bumping us up to where we receive twenty nine percent of the revenue, where you still, you know, get like two thirds of the revenue, but like you just carve out like a third of it that goes to fighters? Would that be so crazy? Like I don't know how you can look at that and be like, yeah, fuck this guy." He, this guy is just talking some nonsense over here. Like th- these are not unreasonable points he's making or unreasonable demands. But then it, it's impossible to separate it from like, like imagine the scenario where Curtis Blades had said before he goes out there for this fight, like well, I don't know what all these guys are so angry about. I'm just going to go out there and work my hardest and try to show the UFC what I'm worth. And then, you know, one day I'll be champion and then all the money will come. I'm not worried about it right now. And then if he went out there and had that exact same fight, I don't think he gets that same reaction from Dana White.
1: Yeah, I mean, other people mentioned this on the broadcast, so it's not as though I'm the first person to think about it. But, like, was the thing that Curtis Blades did in this fight
0: any different than what Habib Nurmagomedov does basically every time? I mean, you could argue that Habib is... Habib don't gas out, you know. Uh, he's more dominant and will just keep putting it on you over and over again. But also, I mean Habib's not a heavyweight. So Yeah, Habib uh, doesn't weigh 261 pounds. That's true. Um, but yeah, you know, and plus like we said, like I don't know what else you thought you were gonna get from Curtis Blades here, especially after he told you. He told you what he was gonna do in this fight. Once you make this fight, you you make so much of his uh, take-home pay determined on whether he wins or loses, of course, like he's going to go out there and fight to his strengths in this kind of a fight. I, I, don't know, I don't know what else. But, I mean, I do like he came out of that. And you could hear it in his answers when, you know, you know the, the media people who were there were kind of trying to ask him over and over again, like, okay, but are you actually happy with this win? Like, are you? Uh, do you really go home satisfied? And he said at one point, you know, hey, you can ask it six different ways, and I'm going to tell you the same thing every time. There is no part of me that is not happy with that win. I went out there, I fought Alexander Volkov, you know, a guy who was champion and heavyweight champion in Bellator and M1 Global, you know, and I beat him. I got the win. And yes, I am happy with that. And I don't care what you think about it. And Curtis Blade's kind of leaning into that a little bit. And he said like one point, like, you know, kind of like, you know, now he knows where he is and who, who he is and where he fits into this whole dynamic. I mean, if that's the way it's gonna be, then I'm glad for him to to lean into it a little more. You might as well go with it at that point.
1: Yeah. Anybody who has listened to this show for any amount of time knows that one of my pet peeves is when we're out here trying to, as a sport, not necessarily any individuals, although this attitude does trickle down from the top. But when we come out here in MMA and try to tell guys how to fight or that there's only one right way to fight. When, in fact, the thing that's, that's cool about mixed martial arts is that you have at your disposal this incredible diversity of, of options, right? That a guy like Curtis Blades can go out there and wrestle and, frankly, make the smart decision when he has a fight against a stand-up fighter, a talented stand-up fighter uh, like Volkov. And we try to pretend like that's not exciting or like that we don't like to watch that when the thing that makes MMA great to begin with is that different guys with different skill sets – can go out there and ply their trade and see which one of them is better under this quote unquote system of of unified rules like I would never like pretend that I was gonna tell Curtis blades not to do that and frankly I don't even know what the other option is man do we really want like national champion wrestler Curtis blades to go out there and try to be an amateur kickboxer is that what we want we want to watch him like try to strike with Alexander Volkov, which he did a little bit in this fight. And then he had some nice strikes on the ground too. So it's not like he was just taking Volkov down and holding him there. He was punishing him with elbows. He was hitting him on the ground. Uh, He had some nice shots in this. Like I I can't for the life of me get my mind around the idea that we think it would be more exciting if Curtis Blades pretended to be an amateur kickboxer and had like a a terrible – Striking only fight with Alexander Volkov. Like, I really don't see how that's any more exciting, but that's you know, just my two cents. And I, so I've been saying that for a, a decade in this sport.
0: Well, and we've seen from example before, like, what happens if a guy goes out there, doesn't fight to his strengths, and loses? Then Dana White's going to come out at, to the post fight press conference and be like, hey, man, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know what he was trying to do out there. That's, that's a terrible game plan, and uh, he never should have done that, and he paid for it. Like, and the fans will be treat you the same way there's not gonna be any sympathy for you because you tried to give us a show or something like no they're just gonna call you stupid and move on
1: yeah I think that the truth is as soon as he said the stuff about fighter pay there was probably no real way that he could win right unless he did something so amazing that no one could have doubted it unless he had a a Francis Ngannou on Alistair Overeem kind of knockout yeah all right let's do uh are you fucking kidding me Ben and then we'll move on to round number two here this week Ben what is your are you fucking kidding me
0: Chad, UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones went shopping. Did a little shopping, it seems. Did he ever? Maybe looking for some jeans. You know, yeah. I mean, the upshot of this whole thing is
1: we found out what brand of jeans John Jones likes to wear.
0: But then he stumbles across a a pair of Hollister jeans. It seems like nineteen ninety nine, super skinny in black or negro, the Spanish translation there. And this, this sets John Jones off. He finds this yeah. insensitive and racist, which then, of course, prompts multiple people on Twitter to be like, you know, that's just a Spanish translation for the color of that the jeans are, right? And then he's, he's doubled down on it. He's not going to – it's unclear if he realized that right away or not. And – then fe- tweets the follow-up, I'm totally aware of how to say the word black in Spanish. I still feel like Hollister's choice of words were insensitive and insulting. Call me sensitive if you want, but today, I was totally insulted. you <sighs> fucking kidding me? It's just, that's the name of the color. That's what it is I'm in Spanish. Me. I just, I don't, I, I gotta, you know, most of the time, I feel like I, I want to try to see things from John Jones' perspective on this kind of thing, but then I guess I gotta agree with... Uh, the fan on Twitter who replied to him, take the L champ. This is your first legit loss. LOL.
1: <laughs> Fucking kidding me. <laughs> Fucking kidding me. Uh, hard to believe that John Jones would be insulted in this instance when he lives in New Mexico, where I got to, I got to theorize you run across the Spanish language frequently. What, what alternative would he have liked them to use? I have no idea, man. I don't know. That's know. the thing. I don't know. Me? Ben, did you see people tweeted us about this earlier today, and then I saw uh, Karim Zidane had a story about it on Bloody Elbow, but long-time UFC cut man Don House showed up wearing some QAnon stuff on his uh, cut man uniform during this UFC event over the weekend, which is not, frankly, the first time that QAnon has showed up in the MMA Bubble In the last several weeks, we had Abe Kawa a few weeks ago tweeting out some QAnon stuff. You know, we had uh, Jorge Masvidal, one of uh, Kawa's clients, tweet out the uh, the fake Kurt Cobain quote, which had widely been shared on right-wing conspiracy websites. And we had uh, another instance where a giant Q, the logo for QAnon, showed up on top of the roof at the Jackson Winklejohn fight school down there in Albuquerque. Uh, put up there, they said, by persons unknown. pranksters. Cranksters just unknown pranksters with access to the roof at the uh, Jackson Winklejohn Martial Arts Academy. We, we got to stop doing this, man. If you're the UFC, first of all, I don't know how, you, isn't it a, a uniform violation? Because the cut men, like the fighters, are no longer allowed to have sponsorships on their, on their attire. I, I don't know that any kind of customization is within the, the bounds of the rules over there in the UFC, so I'm not sure how the guy even gets on camera with the with the Q patch on his chest and then whatever the whatever the patch on his arm is, I'm not going to go deep enough down the rabbit hole to find out what all this stuff means. But like, number one, if you're the UFC, how, how do you let the guy go on camera wearing that stuff? Number two, we, as like a sporting subculture, we got to be smarter. We just got to be smarter and not fall victim to these bullshit conspiracy theories. Are you fucking kidding me?
0: Well, that that's what George Soros would like you to think, Chad. Oh Jesus Christ! Can I can I just be honest here and say I don't really understand what QAnon is? People have tried. Sure. I mean, I've seen people you know mention it and reference it, everything on the internet. I don't I don't understand what it is. Uh don't explain it to me. Some
1: of it is about like the to go deep on state, not
0: right? Deep state. Okay. Yeah, no it's a deep more. state
1: conspiracy. All okay. the deep state is is out to get Trump because they it's the deep state. They're not out to get him because he's a Criminal, career criminal, breaking tons of laws all the time in the uh, the government of the United States, which pisses off certain members of the government of the United States. I don't know. You fucking kidding me? We got to be smarter. Fucking kidding me? That's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
0: I think a lot of us, when we were looking at this fight card on Saturday night, had the bout between Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos kind of circled there for us, thinking this one's going to deliver some fireworks, and it did. Easily the best fight of the night. A lot of people were talking about it as one of the best fights we've seen in 2020, or at least, I don't know, I'd say one of the best fights we've seen in the pandemic era of the UFC. Then afterwards, Josh Emmett gets kind of fired up, and it seems like he's mad at the media, which. I got it to say, as a member of said media and a consumer of the MMA media, I can't say that I had seen a whole lot of negative Josh Emmett takes before this, but here's a quote from Josh Emmett, all you guys, all the journalists counting me out, I see all your guys' stuff, you guys have no idea what I'm capable of, I blew my ACL, first 15 seconds, I had to dig deep again, you guys always count me out, I'm going to stop doing interviews with you guys, because you guys always doubt me, Uh, and then goes on to say stuff about power and precision. Um, Okay, can we get him to give us some links? Because I don't really know what Josh Evans is talking about. I mean, it it seemed afterwards like he was talking about people doing like fight picks, and he was upset that people were picking against him. But I don't know. I mean, this was a close fight, a closely contested fight between two guys, where it was a good matchup. You could see people picking it either way. Is Is this the bunker mentality you like to talk about, Chad? Fighters season on something to get themselves fired up, feeling like everybody's against them?
1: I don't know, man. Like, it was a very close fight. Shane Burgos was out there thinking that he won it until they announced the final score. You could see it on his face where he was kind of like, oh, man, when he figured out that he wasn't going to be the the victor, wasn't going to get the nod in this decision. Uh, And, yeah, you're right. Like, I I was – I was looking around at the, at the media coverage leading up to this event and I didn't see anything that was, seemed like it was anti-Josh Emmett or like anyone was even espousing an anti-Josh Emmett opinion or anything like that. Uh, I didn't see that Darren Till had registered Josh Emmett as a bum.com or anything like that. Like <laughs> I, I thought it was just sort of like a normal lead up to the fight. And like if you're going to be mad about people's fight picks, man, like that's literally a person just doing their job. Like if if readers are going to read fight pick stuff and you are an MMA analyst and it is your job to go out there and, and say like who you think is going to win according to how you read the fight and what the odds are and what everybody's skill sets are. Like that's – you're literally just doing your job. It would be like if somebody got mad at Josh Emmett for hurting Shane Burgos. <laughs> like Josh <laughs> Emmett, you punched Shane Burgos in the face, you big bully. You mean, mean guy. So not it's trenching. very strange to see him react that way. Although not that it necessarily
0: takes away from what was, as
1: you said, an amazing fight.
0: Yeah, and it's it was one of the fights where when the matchup was announced, everybody goes, okay, that's going to be a good one. That's going to be, you know, one of the most exciting fights on the card. And it ends up exactly being what you'd expect, like the whole fight, a really awesome fight. The one where, frankly, by the end of it, you're going, damn, why didn't why don't we have this as the main event? So we get five rounds out of, you know, a couple featherweights. who can actually go out there and do it. Rather than heavyweights who are gonna get tired after three rounds, we could really use two more rounds of Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos. but plus it's like it's not like Shane Burgos was a bum, and people were like, oh, I still think he can beat Josh Emmett. Like Shane Burgos is a good fighter, man. like, like Shane Burgos came in here uh, thirteen and one for this fight. Only loss uh, was to uh, Calvin Cutter, like, like in 2018. It's and he he's been on a little bit of a streak beat, you know, Kirk Holobug, Cub Swanson, Americani Like, it's not like people are looking at this guy and being like, well, he sucks, but he's still better than you, Josh Emmett. Like I felt like everybody feels pretty positively about Josh Emmett. And the the fight lived up to exactly what you would expect of it. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm in favor of whatever fighters need to use, I guess, to get themselves fired up. But I would say to Josh Emmett, the solution for you, especially because he, he also directed some of his complaints toward the UFC, like he felt like he wasn't being getting enough push from the UFC. He felt like there were politics in the way of who they wanted to push and who they didn't. I don't think the solution for Josh Emmett is to seek less media exposure.
1: Yeah,
0: I would say maybe you want to go the opposite direction. Like, yeah. Maybe you want to get your name out there a little bit more and, and become more a topic of conversation because I don't think it's – if you're thinking I'm not getting enough of a push – like I don't think retreating away from doing any sort of like stuff that'll get you exposure and get you some self promotion. Like I don't think that's the answer you're looking for.
1: Yeah, it was it was a, a terrific fight, the, the fight that we expected. And Shane Burgos went out there looking like an 145 pound giant. So for Josh Emmett to to win this decision and and win it, you know, it was a close fight. It was a close decision, but like pretty obviously, I thought in favor of Josh Emmett it was certainly. Uh, more successful and more capable with his striking is a great performance. And the fact that he appeared to hurt his knee and and he and his corner man both said he thought he blew his ACL basically in the first striking exchange of the fight. So for him to go 15 minutes and still get the win is an amazing performance. And now suddenly, unfortunately we're probably going to focus on these post fight comments where he's, he's blaming the media for not uh, giving him a chance to win. Now, if you're, if you're Josh Emmett and you want to go out there and say, Hey man, I feel like I'm one of the best fighters in this division and I feel like I'm underexposed. I think that is probably perfectly legitimate because, you know, Josh Emmett again, seems like one of these guys uh, who perhaps has been in the UFC uh, long enough, you know, four years now, a little bit over four years, uh, even though he's only got two losses in the UFC. I think he's a guy that sometimes we look at him and we think, okay, he's a fun fighter. He's great to watch, but I don't necessarily know if he's going to be the champion next week. So if you're, if you're – and and because of that, like maybe we don't give him enough attention as we give some of the other top contenders at 145 pounds. Like uh, uh, if you wanted to say that, like I feel like that would be a legitimate uh, complaint for Josh Emmett. But to say like you guys count me out and so I don't want to do any more media, as you said, seems both counterproductive and almost sort of like warrantless since I don't know what you would be mad about other than – like analysts doing their job telling readers who they thought was going to win the fight.
0: Yeah, it's also tough though like if you're looking at where Josh Emmett is and you're you're trying to think about okay, what does he need to do in order to kind of climb up the ranks and get up there on that in that top echelon and that that title picture. And man, the featherweight class is a tough one right now. Because right now, and this is, I I don't think it's been updated after the fight, but I think coming into this, Josh Emmett ranked 8th, Shane Burgos ranked 10th. Ahead of Josh Emmett, you have Frankie Edgar. These are the UFC's official rankings, by the way. I just did the air quotes with my fingers, so you know. Ahead of Josh Emmett, you have Frankie Edgar, Calvin Cutter, Yair Rodriguez, the Korean Zombie, Zabit, Brian Ortega, Max Holloway, and then at the top, your guy Alexander Volkanovsky. I mean, I would think a lot of those guys who are above Josh Emmett right now, are all kind of thinking about how do I work a little closer to that belt. And a lot of them are probably looking at Josh Emmett and being like, that's a tough fight. Yeah, nobody's going to want to fight that dude. That's a tough fight. And if I don't absolutely have to, if I can find anybody else, like they also probably look at it and they go, I don't know how much of instant shine you get from beating Josh Emmett right now. He's a really tough guy. The hardcores know that. A lot of people will see that fight, you know, uh, like a Frankie Edgar, Josh Emmett kind of fight and get excited about it. But a lot of other people, you know, it's it's not the the one that you would make for your guy where you're like, okay, we're going to have one fight that's going to vault you into title contention. That's not going to be the fight. And so everybody is tough in that, in, in that entire top 10, top 15 at featherweight right now. Everybody is tough. And if you're trying to find a way to move a little closer to that belt, I don't know, it, it seems like you got to do it through some combination of like uh not only impressive fights and performances but personality and then getting the right matchup like who, who do you see like Josh Emmett that could, who could, he could get a fight against and this would be the one that kind of puts him in a position where he could get in that title conversation
1: yeah he, he like it's not a com- complete analogous situation with Leon Edwards but like he's one of those same kind of dudes that like seems like he's a really tough fight but if you were a top contender in this division and you were one of these guys circling a title shot you you wouldn't want to fight that guy you like you wouldn't want to fight anybody behind you in the rankings but you certainly wouldn't want to fight someone who seemed like they were going to provide you know the least exposure the least like high level exposure that Josh Emmett is going to provide and again like if that's what you think if you're Josh Emmett and you think that you're overlooked because nobody wants to fight you like that seems completely reasonable for me uh, for you to say that, in, in my opinion, it's just that like it's it's weird to come out of this kind of signature performance against Shane Burgos and then immediately say that you're mad at the media. And I mean, like, again, they talked – they talked to these guys so, so soon after the fights. Like at least during the pandemic, we're not talking to guys in the cage while they're still winded and, and have just gotten punched in the head uh, and we expect them to be coherent and have like good thoughts about things. But even when we're doing these sort of remote post fight interviews, like how much time had passed since Josh Emmett had just fought fifteen minutes against Shane Burgos, like a minute? Two minutes? Like you were getting him right after the fight. So yeah. it's possible like he's still operating on emotion and, and uh adrenaline and all the other stuff. I you know, if you talk to him an hour later or something, he might be able to phrase it better or he might have different thoughts. I just uh Put a different spin than we inspect expected. I think on what might be a, a you know fight of the year candidate by the time it's all said and
0: done. Well, I, I will say I, I was going to use it for my are you fucking kidding me until we devoted a round of talking about this fight. But to go out there and basically injure your knee right away yeah. in a fight, and then still have that kind of fight and win—that is kind of are you fucking kidding me territory for me. Just yeah, just to sure. admit, like because that's there's got to be a little alarm that goes off in your head when you feel something go in your knee right away in the first round where you're going well shit yeah now what and and to fight that well and to win it is kind of amazing i
1: agree that's gonna do it for round number two we'll be right back with round number three Ben, we've been talking lately about how some of these fights in the pandemic era of the UFC feel pretty random. They feel thrown together at the last minute. Some of them include people that we're not necessarily all that familiar with, so it's hard to invest in them emotionally. Saturday's main event at the Apex Arena between Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker at UFC on ESPN 12 is not one of those fights. This is a fight where we expect it to be action-packed. We know both of the people in it. We understand in some ways the stakes in this fight, and we are excited to watch it. Dan Hooker has been calling for a matchup with an elite lightweight for a while now. This will be, interestingly enough, Hooker's fourth fight in less than a calendar year. He'll be trying to go four in a row since beating James Vick back on July 20th of 2019, obviously with a huge opportunity in front of him here against Dustin Poirier, who is a person we all like and respect and comes into this fight in the wake of his loss in the title fight to Habib Nurmagomedov in September of last year. So a guy who will be hot to turn back Dan Hooker here and get himself back on the winning track and back into, you know, something resembling contendership status. What are your thoughts about this fight? How do you see this one
0: going? You know, I remember I was at Dan Hooker's fight with Ally Quinta at UFC 243 in Melbourne, uh, and I remember him afterwards at the press conference saying that he wanted Dustin Poirier. And somebody I think told him at the press conference like, "Well, Dustin Poirier says that he's not interested in that fight. He's trying to fight Conor McGregor next." And Dan Hooker's response was like, "Yeah, okay, sure, sure, good, good luck." Um, but when you were ready to come back down to earth for the real pos- the things that are actual possibilities. Let's talk about me and you getting in this fight. You didn't get it right away. He ended up fighting Paul Felder in February, but then now he's getting it. And it's, it, I, it struck me at the time as a good, smart call out by Dan Hooker to go for somebody like Dustin Poirier, somebody who you know we're, we're excited about, somebody that uh, has really upped his own profile, and also known as a good action fighter and a good stylistic matchup. I think for Dan Hooker and. It was a really kind of like intelligent looking ahead kind of thing. And then just waiting it out. Like, I mean, the, the win over Paul Felder helps. That was a hell of a fight. Both guys got banged up in that one. And then Dustin Poirier eventually kind of looking around and going, well, shit, what else is there to do? Might as well take Dan Hooker up on that offer. But then when I think about like how this fight is actually going to play out, I mean, I like Dan Hooker has shown in some of these fights, like especially against somebody like Ally Quinto, where you're in there with a guy. Who can be a real like hard charge and banger kind of guy, and he fought a very smart fight there and did not get sucked into the parts of the striking exchanges that where he could be put in trouble. He's going to he use his size and his, his length and his reach, and outpointed Ally Keen to there. And then you up against Dustin Poirier though, who is a dangerous fighter who is also himself a pretty smart fighter. And you mentioned how much like how many fights Dan Hooker has had like over the last like calendar year. Especially coming, you know, I guess it's been, what, like four months or so since the Paul Felder fight. But that was a tough fight, man. Those guys went five hard rounds, and both of those guys took some real damage in that fight. And I kind of wonder if fighting Dustin Poirier now, is this the one where maybe some of the the stuff you've been putting your body through starts to show a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you want to say one thing about Dan Hooker, he's a guy who's always had a call out, right? We're yeah. always asking these fighters, like, have somebody ready, have a name ready to say – when they ask you who you want to fight and Dan Hooker has played it about perfectly in that regard uh since coming into the UFC and certainly since moving up to lightweight back in uh the summer of 2017 he's 7 and 1 since then you know he called out Paul Felder pretty famously calls out Dustin Poirier here uh and gets gets his wish here gets to fight Dustin Poirier uh and i agree with you that this this stacks up as a as certainly his toughest test to date, and we're not totally sure what to expect. And he's had a a lot of mileage on the tires in the last year, and it kind of seems like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for some of these guys. Because uh, if you're Dan Hooker, you got to try to stay relevant, you got to try to stay busy, you got to try to fight as often as you can. You're also trying to climb into contender status. You're trying to build yourself up in this division, the most competitive division uh, in mixed martial arts with the possible exception of featherweight, but certainly right up there at 155 pounds. So the next person you're going to fight is going to be someone super tough, and it might come in a situation where where you do feel like you've worn yourself down a little bit. But I'm excited for this one, man. I want to see uh, Dustin Poirier go out there and fight Dan Hooker. I think they have a, a, a nice complement of styles, and clearly there's a lot on the line for both of these guys. Uh, if I had $20 I never wanted to see again, I would probably throw it down on... On Dustin Poirier, maybe really? just because he's he's the more proven entity here than Dan
0: Hooker. What if uh, I tell you, though, that Dustin Poirier now going off at about a two-to-one favorite. However, Dan Hooker, Chad, right now, I can get you plus 180 odds on Dan Hooker. What are you thinking about that 20 bucks you never want to see it again?
1: You're, you're try- you know my tendency to go for the big score. You know my tendency to go for the underdog, and you're trying to sucker me into that right now.
0: That is exactly what I'm trying to do. I, I don't
1: think you have my best interests at heart, folks. <laughs> I think you're trying to get me to lose this twenty dollars. I never want to see again. I
0: just want to not, see you maximize your return
1: on investment here, Chad. Not that Dan Hooker isn't perfectly capable of winning this, because he is. See now, you're now I'm trying to talk myself into it.
0: Now, uh, the thing here that I, I found myself wondering when I was looking at this fight and thinking about you know which way it might go and everything. Is if Dustin Poirier is to win, if he proves the odds makers' fight, right? And Dustin Poirier wins this fight. Does that throw a little cold water on what we're thinking future matchup wise in the lightweight division? Because if Dan Hooker wins, hey man, then he's won four straight, beat former interim champ Dustin Poirier. Now he's starting to talk about, like, you know, being a fresh face in the title picture. If Dustin Poirier wins, does it mean, well, okay, we're kind of like right back where we were?
1: Uh, I mean, I guess it's always exciting to have new blood coming into the championship picture. And from that stance, Dan Hooker would be certainly an interesting guy to have in amongst that, that lightweight elite. It seems like no matter who wins this one, though, they're going to be waiting for a while because neither of these guys are really, uh, at the top of the leaderboard for (laughs) who's going to be the next for Habib as soon as, or, uh, uh, Justin Gaethje as soon as they settle their business in the fall, whenever that happens to be, uh, so I don't know. Neither guy is completely out of it here, and, and, and like I don't necessarily know that the uh, that the stakes or the the title picture is going to fall into atrophy or stasis or anything like that. I think whoever wins this will be a nice either addition or you know Dustin Poirier getting back on track, and and like that's kind of one of the things I like about it is that both these guys have tangible stakes that are up for grabs between the two of them, and whoever wins it, I think will be in a in a nice spot, but not necessarily knocking knocking right on the door for for who's going to fight next. Uh what, what did you think both of Justin Gaethje's comments or a tweet that he sent out leading up to this fight basically saying Dan Hooker is going to get murked by uh, Dustin Poirier and also Dan Hooker uh over the weekend commenting on on Max Roscove taking himself out of this fight saying that like he, we didn't know he was made of marshmallows or something to that effect.
0: Man Maybe maybe Dan Hooker could do a little less of kicking people while they're down. Like just just for the public image campaign. Maybe it's not the best look that you can do. But uh, I also, I mean, I would wonder what Justin Gaethje has seen that he thinks he's going to get absolutely murked. Because I think this is kind of a tough fight for both those guys. I mean, I, I, I'm picking Dustin Poirier here. I think that he probably wins this. Uh, but also, I mean... Dan Hooker has shown us that he is a smart guy who can stick to a game plan and find ways to get it done. And uh, people who can do that, it's, it's not going to be Dustin Poirier just walking him down and, and slam, walking him into the fence and slamming him with a big punch. Like I think it's going to be a little tougher than that. So I, don't, I, I would love to know what, what exactly Justin Gacy thinks he's seen that tells him that. Yeah
1: yeah uh, I agree with you, and Dan hooker's we like we're we're trying to like him, man, We're trying to like this guy, and when he says these things about Max Roscove, I'm just kinda like, Come on, man, yeah, I'm trying to consider you to be one of my guys. Try to put yeah. you under consideration
0: go ahead and, and and talk shit on people like further up the the m m a food chain than you. Don't go be picking on some guy making his u s a debut and he's tired.
1: All right, let's do, are you fucking, or I'm sorry, just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will uh, get out of here for this week. Ben, did you see John Jones? We're going to do this, another John Jones item here. Oh, wow. Did You see him reply to Mike Tyson
0: on Twitter this
1: week where uh, Tyson's doing a live chat and he says, a UFC fighter will never be richer than a first class boxer. To make $100 million, Conor McGregor had to fight Floyd Mayweather. Uh, Even if he fights John Jones, he's not going to get that. John Jones got to fight me if he wants to make some super money. So you, this is maybe a careless choice of words by Mike Tyson here, but you know where this is going, right? John Jones comes on his Twitter at Mike Tyson. I'm listening. So already we're starting to talk about this. Mike Tyson, I'll box you in the ring. If you promise to give me a real fight in the octagon afterwards, Jones wrote on Instagram, reading this from uh Damon Martin's story over there at MMA fighting, uh, And because I respect you so much, I promise I won't break anything on you. I guess this week I'm just saying, Ben, really? Going to do this again, huh? Going to do the uh, MMA fighter needs to make some money and he's going to call out the boxer. Only so many times we could do this, you guys. I'm just saying. Only so many
0: times. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week I'm just saying – did you see my guy, Jim Miller, get back in the win column this weekend?
1: Heck yeah, nice little arm bar. Arm bar for the old guy. That's what you like to see.
0: That's right. Locks up that arm bar from the bottom. Uh, gets himself a first round submission win. A performance of the night bonus. Somehow, Jim Miller again, somehow only 36 years old. feel like I've been watching Jim Miller fight my entire adult life. Somehow he is still four years younger than me. But I'm just saying, Jim Miller is officially in that territory now where, as an old guy myself, when I see him go out here, fight some dude who's like 10 years younger than him, and get a submission, damn it just, as the kids say, Chad, it just hits different. I'm just saying, I can foresee a future where, for at least the next decade, Jim Miller just shows up every once in a while, submits somebody, gives him a little chuck on the shoulder like, Hey, good job. Thanks thanks for showing up, young fella. Good effort. You're 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 going places. Don't don't let this get you down and then just kind of marches right back off to the the shop in the back of his house where he's got some home improvement projects he's working on. And that's just what what our our next many years look like and I will be totally fucking satisfied with it. I'm just saying.
1: Just saying. All right, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Of course, we'll be back on Wednesday with the live chat and then back on Friday with the Power Hour. So we got fun stuff happening all week over on the Patreon page. This weekend, as we said, you got Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker uh, doing the damn thing over there at the Apex. Mike Perry and Mickey Gall also uh, on that card, as well as a heavyweight fight between John Vellante and the Crochet boss, Maurice Green. And then uh, obviously a bunch of other fights as well. So on Monday on the proper, we'll probably break that down. And then we got a whole nother week of Patreon stuff over and over again. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.